This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you will join me on a very deep dive and lengthy exploration of all things Wirecard, where I'm joined by Mikhail Ryder-Gordon of Affiliated Monitors. Episodes post each Wednesday on the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, I'm joined by Eric Lorber. Eric is a vice president at K2 Intelligence Finn, and we talk about the making of the sausage of trade sanctions. I know you'll find it useful and enjoyable. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode, and you're in a real for a real treat today because we're going to geek out, go into the weeds, find out how the sausage is made, and generally have a lot of fun. Today, I'm joined by Eric Lorber. Eric is a vice president at K2 Intelligence Finn. I was lucky enough to have him on an earlier podcast when he talked to us about uh, economic sanctions and how sanctions are created. And so I asked Eric if he would uh, be able to come back and visit with us and me about uh, how the sausage is made. And he uh, has graciously uh, taken some time from his schedule to visit with me. So that with, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, Eric, first of all, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. It's awesome to be back with you and looking forward to the conversation today. So, Eric, as, uh, as you know, uh, many of my listeners are anti-corruption compliance professionals. It, it's uh, The total audience is broader than that. But we, we really don't, I think, have a full appreciation of how economic sanctions are created, the various interests that go into that. Uh, is it, you know, do you just simply sit down and write it? Uh, is it a process? And I really wanted to, to visit with you on about that. So with that introduction, could you tell us a little bit about uh, w- what you did at the government around those issues? Yeah, thanks, Tom. So it, it's a great question, and I'm happy, you know, over the course of our of our conversation to really sort of get into the the nitty gritty about how sanctions are made, how designations are done, because as it will probably surprise no one, um, it takes a lot of work. You know, OFAC releases their designations, their press releases, and it says, oh, X, Y, and Z person is now designated. And, and people in the compliance community, myself now included on the outside, look at that and we say, oh, that's nice. Who's this person? What do they do? But after having been on the inside, you realize how much work, how many hours, how many days and weeks go into simply, you know, the process of, of targeting a specific individual or a specific set of individuals. So I'll talk about that. Before I do, just to answer your specific question, Tom. Um, so I was uh, at the, the U.S. Department of Treasury. I was a senior advisor to the Undersecretary for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence at the Treasury Department. And so if you can think of this, uh, if you can think of TFI, as it's called, Terrorism and Financial Intelligence, uh, it's composed of four offices. So it's composed of OFAC, Office of Foreign Assets Control, which everybody knows. It's con- uh, composed of FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, the USA Bank Secrecy Act and AML regulator. It's composed of the Office of Intelligence and Analysis, which is uh, an intelligence branch. Um, and it's composed of the Office of Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes, which is sort of the policy branch uh, for these issues at the Treasury Department. So in my role as a senior advisor to the Undersecretary, I kind of monitored and worked with all four of these different organizations uh, to to you know, push forward um, anti-money laundering and sanctions initiatives. And so I did a lot of work, for example, on Iran, did a good amount of work on North Korea, 
on Venezuela, on Russia, and then things related to beneficial ownership and money laundering as well. So really kind of saw the whole gamut um, and can can provide this group and, and the readership and the listeners with a, a sense of how things are sort of done on the inside, I guess. If I could maybe then just start with sort of uh, current events. And as reported uh, literally yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, uh, the title read, U.S. imposes sanctions on network for allegedly helping blacklisted Russian businessman, and it named a Russian whose name I want to begin to try to pronounce as being blacklisted by the U.S. and accused of meddling in the in the U.S. elections. Could maybe uh, we start there, and, and what would be the process for review analysis and moving something like that forward? Yeah, absolutely. So it's multi-step, right? The first kind of... Um the first step in the process is basically target identification, right? It's so who are we wanting to target? How did we get the information about a specific person, in this case, a Russian, a Russian national who we think we may want to sanction? And this information comes in from all types of different areas, both within the U.S. government and outside the U.S. government. So within the U.S. government, you have the intelligence agencies who are able to develop this information um, or there are other um, other partner you know, countries who who may have this information and give it to us. But outside the U.S. government, there are a number of different sources as well. So one, you have sources that come from financial institutions and compliance officers like many on um, listening to the podcast. So let's say, for example, there's a suspicious activity report that's filed and it implicates a foreign person who may be of interest. That can be the type of thing which leads to, you know, Treasury Department officials pulling on the thread and seeing if there's additional illicit activity there that may justify sanctions. The other way, actually, which is interesting, where you do get this sort of initial first step of let's figure out who this person is and gather more um, information is actually from uh, non-governmental organizations. So NGOs oftentimes will come to the Treasury Department. They'll come to OFAC with, you know, packets of information about some person. They think, hey, this guy is a you know, engaged in human rights abuses. So we need to target him. We need to focus on him. And Treasury takes that into account. And in fact, it's written into certain laws and regulations that Treasury should take that into account. The Global Magnitsky Act from uh, from 2017 actually has a provision that says you should pay attention to credible information provided from outside uh, non-governmental organizations. So first step is just this kind of target identification um, as kind of the, the, you know, the initial. The second step is... Um, after you have identified someone you want to target with sanctions, you have to develop the evidence that will, frankly, hold up in court um, or withstand a court challenge to be able to, to, you know, make sure that this individual is indeed engaged in illicit activity. So it is, you know, the person you think it is and they are engaged in bad stuff. But in addition to that, so that you know their entire network. And we'll talk about this, I think, maybe a little bit later, but, um, you know, Treasury doesn't like to go after a single individual usually. It likes to go after networks of individuals because the impact is usually more substantial. So what you see here, this is run usually out of um, the Office of Global Targeting at OFAC, is an effort to really get a sense for, for the particular target, you know, what evidence is there about who this person is, um, who their business partners are, what their business associations are, and so on and so forth. The next step you get to um, is, again, still usually within the Treasury, though there is, you know, pulling in from the Department of Justice and from the intelligence community, um, uh, uh, what's called or sort of an assessment of the legal authority based on the evidence you've collected, right? So you've got all this great evidence, but if there's no legal authority to sanction this person, 
well, then you're kind of out of luck, right? So you have to sort of do this um, this analysis where you say, all right, here's all the evidence of the illicit activity this person is engaged in. Is there existing legal authority, be it a statute, be it an executive order, that we can use to say, hey, look, we can actually impose sanctions designations on this person? And then in my mind comes, you know, once it's sort of approved up through through OFAC and, and through the Treasury Department, comes the sort of the most interesting and oftentimes contentious part of, of designations. And this is the famed interagency process. So this is when essentially you have to get clearance for pursuing a sanctions designation, clearance from other people, other agencies in the U.S. federal government. And, you know, everyone has a say, you know, the Department of Justice may say, hey, we don't think there's legally enough, you know, information here to be actually to, to be able to really sanction this person. Other uh, other agencies have have different reasons for potentially trying to put a, what's called a hold on a designation. Right. So the State Department will sometimes put a hold on a designation because they think that if you if you actually sanction that person, it could have serious and negative foreign policy consequences for the U.S., um, the intelligence community can oftentimes put holds on, on particular targets because they say, listen, if you sanction this target, it means we're not going to be able to collect, collect intel on this target anymore. Let me give you a hypothetical example of what that looks like. So let's say that uh, Treasury has identified a bank that is sending money to Syria. And it's clear they're sending lots of money to Syria, and Treasury wants to stop that activity from occurring because it's helping to prop up the Assad regime. Well, Treasury proposes sanctioning that bank, but the intelligence community may actually be collecting intelligence on the financial flows that are going through that financial institution. So if you shut that institution down, it means those financial flows, they're going to go somewhere else. And the intelligence community may not have the ability to see that as well. So sometimes the IC, intelligence community, the IC will say, let's hold off on sanctioning this party because frankly, we don't, you know, we don't want to lose that, that collection capability. So once you sort of get all of the interagency buy-in, and again, this is very much a conversation that's going on through all of this, that's when you're finally ready to, to press play on a series of sanctions. Um, and, you know, that's when, you know, you get the, the 9.30 a.m. OFAC announcement that there's been a new designation along with the names of the people who have been designated, um, as well as, uh, you know, a press release describing what's going on. One thing, Tom, I do want to mention um, uh, before continuing the conversation, depending on the target, that makes that, that sort of determines how high up the chain you know, the, the potential action goes. I mean, if it's a huge company, right, or a huge target package, sometimes it'll go up to the, the, the president for his, you know, approval or disapproval of, of the package. Sometimes it won't if it's a smaller target. So it really kind of depends on, on, you know, what the, the action is and what, what's under consideration to determine sort of how the process operates. But that's generally how it works as like a, as a rule. So is largely the work done by uh, career civil servants or non-political uh, appointees uh, as you were when you were uh, at Treasury? Yeah, that's right. So it's almost all, um, you know, it's all done by civil servants at kind of the baseline level. But of course, 
you know, there is with political appointees, they give or oftentimes, you know, are the ones who have sort of the final say uh, as to whether or not to go ahead with the target. So, for example, the secretary of the Treasury, obviously a political appointee, has final say if OFAC designates a particular person um, or, or declines to. You know, I will say that um, I think Secretary Mnuchin um, said this publicly in a press report or maybe in, in front of testimony or in testimony in front of Congress. He said he spends probably 50 percent of his time or did on sanctions related matters. And I think just working at Treasury and seeing how he reviewed everything, I think that was generally speaking right. Um, but as a as a general rule, um, you know, the 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 politicals and the and the career civil servants, particularly at Treasury, worked very well together to to focus on stamping out illicit activity and sanctionable activity. After uh, Treasury pushes play, as you said, and the sanction is announced, is there any ongoing monitoring or uh, does Treasury stay involved? What's the process after you hit play? Absolutely. So it's it's not a situation where, you know, Treasury presses the play button and says, my work here is done and they back off. Um, there's consistent monitoring um, for a number of different things. So one thing that is monitored is how impactful uh, we think the designations actually were, right? So, um, you know, there are a couple ways to do this. There are intelligence gathering means that can be used. So stuff that sort of lives in the, in the classified realm, but also one really important metric for how impactful uh, a, de- a specific designation is, um, can be the blocking and rejecting reports that are filed by financial institutions and us companies, right? So, if we desi- if Treasury designates somebody and that person has assets in the United States, um, let's say at a bank, that bank is legally obligated to block and report um, on on the funds that that it has blocked in those accounts. So you get a sense, Treasury gets a sense pretty quickly of are there immediate impacts in terms of funds that are seized. But in addition to that, one thing Treasury spends a lot of time on, and I think this is a really important point to make. Um, is seeing how uh, designated parties try to kind of shift their activities. So let's say there's a, 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 a currency exchange network uh, in a particular Middle Eastern jurisdiction that Treasury sanctions. Um, oftentimes what will happen is, you know, that exchange network will try to reconstitute some somewhere else. And so Treasury tries to track that to see, hey, where's that reconstitution occurring? And can we go after that target as well? It's something of a game, uh, I, I like to say, of whack-a-mole. So you're always sort of, you know, hitting it one place and seeing something similar pop up somewhere else and trying to hit it there as well. It's a constant sort of cat and mouse game. You spoke a little bit about the information that could come in from what I'll call the private sector. Uh, is it, would it be fair to characterize that as an ongoing dialogue? And if that's correct, does this dialogue with financial institutions, NGOs or others continue after Treasury hits the push play button? Oftentimes what you'll see uh, certainly with with non-governmental organizations, when they, for example, come in with, you know, credible information to say, hey, we think you should target this person. What they'll do is, you know, after that person is designated, let's say, they'll come in with additional supplemental information to say, hey, we think this person is now doing, you know, this alternate activity because the sanctions, you know, pushed him out of the original activity that you targeted. Again, that kind of game of whack-a-mole. On the financial institution side, um, there is a, you know, a, a pretty robust dialogue 
that occurs um, between the Treasury Department and financial institutions. I know there's this kind of um, uh, this kind of sort of assessment that OFAC sort of operates in kind of a, a one-way street world where financial institutions push information to OFAC and then OFAC never gets back to them or doesn't respond to them or give them guidance. Um, but I think, you know, and there's some of that, of course, but I think certainly w- what I saw and was privy to is that uh, we at Treasury reached out to financial institutions, um, especially after we did big de- designation actions to say, hey, here are the targets that we designated. Here's what we actually saw that we can release publicly. But we think that, you know, there are assets related to these targets or, you know, front and shell companies related to these targets that may be trying to access other, um, other avenues to the financial system, including potentially through your bank. So pay attention, like, you know, have everything, uh, uh, have your ears up, be on guard. And there was a lot of that when I was at Treasury, sort of this proactive, post-designation, reaching out to make sure that that people were really aware of the action that we took, and then also that, you know, it could potentially create create risk for them as well. Uh, first podcast we did, you explained that there are different sets of sanctions, and uh, economic sanctions are something that uh, many corporate uh, compliance functions have to deal with. Is the sausage made the same way or is it different and eat more traditional economic sanctions? Generally speaking, the same. Um, but, you know, there are two kind of uh, t- two sort of distinctions I, I would draw here um, internally from from sort of the U.S. government side. And one distinction relates to sanctions, which I'll call sort of imposed from the top down as opposed to sanctions which kind of bubble up from the bottom up. So what do I mean by that? This goes to the sort of first set of questions we were talking about, Tom, where the the question was sort of where do sanctions come from initially, right? And I I sort of started off talking about, you know, the target identification. But in actuality, if there's a political decision that's made to say like, hey, we want to ramp up the pressure on North Korea or we want to impose, you know, broad new sanctions on, on Iran, Oftentimes that comes from, you know, a White House decision um, or, or, you know, a political decision. And then the Treasury Department and, and the civil servants at Treasury said, OK, can you draft an executive order that actually, you know, does X, Y and Z, ramps up the pressure on Iran in this, this and this way? And then so, you know, the, the executive order is crafted based on sort of guidance from from above. And that's the natural way the system works. That's kind of the top down approach. What I was describing when I was really describing that kind of process approach I was mentioning um, in our conversation was more sort of the bottom-up approach, where there's a target that's identified based on you know the identification of specific illicit activity. So there are kind of two different processes there, um, and you know one thing that does play a role in in where you know it comes from is is the type of sanction you're talking about. If it's a specific list-based designation, like of, you know, a particular terrorist financier, it will oftentimes come from kind of that bottom up, that bottom up uh, approach, bottom up system. If it's a, a new comprehensive sanctions program, say, um, you know, say we're in 2014, a comprehensive sanctions program on Crimea, right, in the context of the Russia sanctions program. Well, that's going to come from that's a political decision. That's going to come from the top down. And essentially, Treasury is going to be said, 
told you guys need to draft an executive order that prohibits all U.S. persons from doing any business in Crimea, if that makes sense. One of the things I think my uh, listeners will be very familiar with is last year, OFAC released a compliance framework, and it is a framework for compliance program for an OFAC uh, the OFAC sanctions program, but I found it to be uh, much broader in its scope and incredibly useful to a wide variety of compliance practitioners. Obviously, the Department of Justice has a compliance framework around anti-corruption. They have one around um, antitrust. Uh, but the OFAC framework had a couple of uh, unique uh, factors that were uh, specific to OFAC, but really I think, led discussions for other types of compliance. But I was wondering if you would have some thoughts on how the, the process OFAC went through to create a document like that, recognizing it would be uh, broadly disseminated to the public and indeed used by the public uh, quite extensively. Full disclosure, I did not personally work on the OFAC framework document. Um, I had actually left government a few months before, maybe six months before. Uh, so I was not involved in that process. I will tell you... I spoke with a number of people who were, um, and the process was described to me as being uh, very, very involved um, and very intense, which makes sense because um, it was, uh, you know, it, it's the most comprehensive statement OFAC has, I think, ever really put out about what their expectations are. The way that OFAC, my understanding, sort of went about the process was essentially there was a determination um, that there needed to be kind of, along with the Department of Justice guidelines that were put out around the same time, there needed to be some type of guidance or document that kind of encompassed all of the expectations and the lessons that OFAC had learned and, and had seen, you know, occurring in the private sector into one place. And so there was this idea of we need to get people in the private sector, not just banks, but corporates as well. Uh, understanding just what their sanctions compliance expectations, sorry, what our, our being OFAC's sanctions compliance expectations actually were. So the way I think that OFAC did it was they, they, in the document reflects this, they did two things. One, they kind of laid out what they viewed as, um, sort of the most robust pillars, five pillars of a sanctions compliance program that was drawn directly from essentially what looks like an AML program. Right. So you've got the five pillars that that match up um, and into these pillars. What they did is it's clear they pulled from the DOJ guidance itself, but they then offered or provided specific um, uh, identifiers or information that they had seen related to OFAC sanctions, compliance issues or challenges. Right. So, for example, in the governance section, uh, which is one of the one of the five pillars, they have this really interesting set of points that they make about uh, mergers and acquisitions, where they essentially say, if you're acquiring a non, if you're a U.S. company acquiring, uh, you know, sorry, if you're a U.S. company acquiring a non-U.S. company, you know, you need to make sure that when you acquire that non-U.S. company, that there's no sanctions risk in doing so, that that non-U.S. company is not engaged engaged in or was engaged in or is continuing to engage in sanctionable activity for a variety of reasons. So what they did was they kind of imported sanctions-specific uh, lessons and concerns into the document. The second part of the document, which I think, you know, in many ways, it was nothing new to us in the compliance, in the sanctions compliance community, but was interesting in the way they did it. 
they basically had a lessons learned. They basically said, you know, here are the top 10 reasons why uh, companies have faced OFAC sanctions enforcement activity. And it was, you know, things like misunderstanding the scope of U.S. jurisdiction, um, misunderstanding kind of, you know, core elements of U.S. law, uh, failing to employ, you know, uh, a screening program that, that relied on fuzzy logic or, or set, you know, the, the fuzzy logic measures in a, re- a commercially reasonable way. And so, you know, it, if you had been in that, if you, have, you know, have practiced in the LFAC sanctions compliance community for a long period of time, nothing in that section of the document was actually surprising to you because OFAC practitioners always look at enforcement actions to try to glean lessons. It's like a, it's like a cottage industry within a cottage industry to sort of understand as much as you can about what OFAC is thinking based on the enforcement activity that they, that they do. So, you know, the first part of the document is, was something which I thought was really new and novel. And the second part was something which we had seen before, but put together, there was this kind of you know, extensive and, and most comprehensive to date expression of what OFAC thinks of when it thinks of its sanctions compliance expectations for a robust program. Once upon a time for my sins, I was appointed an export control director at a company. And um, I had to learn a lot of export control, uh, largely about classification, product classification for licensing. But in part of that journey, um, I discovered that uh, OFAC, Treasury, BIS, all put on a lot of publicly available presentations to educate the public. Uh, That was not my experience with Department of Justice uh, lawyers uh, prosecuting the FCPA or uh, even antitrust, not to say they didn't speak, but there wasn't this concerted effort to engage in an ongoing dialogue with public corporations around uh, education. Uh, Would that be a fair assessment uh, from what you saw at your time at Treasury? Yeah, Treasury, I mean, OFAC does really try to educate the public as much as they can. It's it's a balancing act, right? Like there are certain things that Treasury is not going to say or they will be reluctant to comment on because it has legal implications, right? So they won't comment on, you know, current ongoing enforcement activity. They won't comment, for example, on upcoming designations because, you know, think about it. If you say, yeah, we're going to designate this target tomorrow – What's that person going to do? They're going to move all their assets out of the United States or out of the reach of, of U.S. authorities. So there are things that, that they sort of will not talk about. But with that being said, um, you know, I think the inclination is to provide as much information as possible. And indeed, if you talk to um, if you talk to, you know, the, the senior level officials at OFAC, Andrea Gacki, Brad Smith, these folks uh, who are, are great, they will say, you know, very clearly the enforcement actions that OFAC engages in, like we're not trying to play a game of gotcha. Gotcha doesn't do that much for us. What we really want to do is want to educate the private sector so that you know, there are no enforcement, there, there, there's no need for enforcement actions, right? Because there are no underlying violations to occur in the first place. So they do have as a major function, I think, this focus on at least trying to tell the private sector what is and is not permissible within the bounds or with that caveat that there's some things they just can't say, you know, because they don't want to sort of create legal legal issues down the road. So, Eric, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but this has just been a way too much fun. And uh, I hope that perhaps I can call upon you again and we can uh, take a deep dive into some specific issues that might come up uh, later on in the year. Tom, that would be great. And it's uh, always great being with you and always great, uh, great being with your audience. 
Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I'm running a couple of special series I'd like to visit with you about that I hope you'll listen to. The first one is a series on Wirecard and the accounting fraud fallout from that that goes out every Wednesday that I'm doing with Mikhail Ryder-Gordon, Managing Director at Affiliated Monitors. The second is next Monday on August 24th, I began a six-part series leading up to my 500th anniversary episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I have a series of special guests, and we take a look back over the past several years in various areas of compliance. I know you will enjoy it. I've had a ton of fun producing it, talking to these special guests, and I'm looking forward to uh, you having the chance to listen to them, too, as I lead up to my 500th episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.